Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Andres Spokoini. He is the president and CEO of Jewish Funders Network, an international community of private foundations and philanthropists with more than 2,500 members from 11 countries around the world, whose mission is to promote meaningful giving and take an active part in the processes that change the thinking and action patterns of philanthropy in the Jewish world. He is a longtime Jewish communal leader with a history of leading successful organizational transformations, serving as the CEO of Federation CJA in Montreal. And prior to that, he worked for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Community in Paris. Enjoy my conversation with Andres Spokoini. Andres, how are you? Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you doing this. I know you're a busy guy, so uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been following you for a long time, and so I'm really curious to hear and pick your oh, brain was- about a few different topics. But let's start with your background, You know where you're from. I hear the accent. I'm sure you'll tell us where you're from and also everything that led to where you are today. Thank you. First of all, thank you for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I don't know what accent you're referring to, but I've heard, you know, I've heard in the past that people say I have an accent. I think it's they who have an accent. But anyhow, um, I did start my my trajectory in uh, Argentina, um, uh, in Buenos Aires. I, I grew up there, and and. Um, I think that growing up there had a lot of influence in in who I am today and and what it what it made in in many different ways. So first of all, I grew up during the time of the generals. It was seventies uh, and eighties. It was a time of of enormous repression, big anti-Semitism. Um, uh, you know, a pure dictatorship, and and the Jewish community for some reason became both a refuge and a place where you could do many of the things that were forbidden in the outside. And I remember, for example, we, we would meet up at the Jewish community to, to see forbidden movies or read forbidden books or, or just to have open conversations where you could say what you were thinking, right? So, so this notion of the Jewish community being the place where you can see who you are and realize yourself and be free and and have a warm space when the outside is so cold and violent stuck with me and and I think in in a way it sort of made me who who I am um and um and it also gave me an a very big understanding of how the Jewish inter- intersects with the secular so for example one of my teachers there as many Argentinian Jews is was you know, Rabbi Marshall Mayer, who was an American rabbi, you know, from the vintage of the 60s and the civil rights movement that then goes to Argentina and finds himself in the dictatorship and, and takes upon himself to fight for human rights there and and, and um, talking about political prisoners and, and, and that and the development of Judaism, of conservative Judaism specifically, in Argentina went hand in hand with the development of a consciousness about human rights and and, and social justice and, and stuff like that. So I learned from very early on to see secular issues 
through a Jewish lens. And last but certainly not least, um, as many people that grew up in Buenos Aires, our uh, education system, our Jewish education system was very, very, very Zionistic. Um, you know, I discovered Jewish quote unquote religion later on. My the beginning was uh, socialist Zionism, right? And and uh, and and only later it added the religious component. Um, but it was something that now it's lost in that community as well around the world. But we were totally bilingual, Hebrew and English and Spanish, sorry. Uh, we, Israel was extremely present in every aspect of our lives. I only joke that I could, I could, I could name the streets of Haifa before I could name the streets of of Buenos Aires. So, so how do you go from growing up in Argentina to running Jewish Funders Network? So interesting. So in a way, so so I think that that involvement with Jewish community like gave me a lot of meaning, a lot of satisfaction, and and I you know went to Israel, studied there, lived there. I I had a um, um, and then at some point, you know, as every as anybody who's like working in the Jewish community feels that they need to have a real job, <laughs> so I started working in the corporate sector too, and I was working in IBM. You know, and then uh, at some point, um, somebody enticed me to go back to the Jewish communal life and to work for the JDC, the Joint Distribution Committee, in a time that um, the Jewish communities of Eastern Europe were emerging out of the long communist night and they needed to rebuild. And, you know, it was supposed to be a two year stint helping those communities uh, stand on their feet and two years became 12. And then when I realized I was deep inside and Jewish coming alive and that's, and that became my life. And then I, I worked as the CEO of the Jewish Community Federation of Montreal, um, which is a fascinating, fascinating experience because that was a community, very traditional federation, one of the most successful federations in North America, but one that really needed a, strat a strategic revisioning in a way. And so that was my job to go and try to help him reimagine the community of the future. And then I got recruited to do the Jewish Founders Network. And I said, you know, this is not for me. This is just, you know, holding hands of rich people. That's, that's, uh, that's not what I want to do. But then, but then I realized, no, wait a second. This is just amazing. This could be a, a fascinating platform to do all sorts of things because you're really working with folks that have the influence and the wherewithal to do real change in the world. And that's what I've been trying to do ever since. So you, you use an interesting word they're trying to do. And I think a lot of people look at you in your shoes and the relationships that you probably have with people that have a lot of resources and financial resources and otherwise and they say, why aren't you doing more? What do you say to that? It depends why I'm, I'm not doing more or what the funders are not doing more. Well, I think that, you know, you, you speak very uh, candidly about, uh, I mean, I, I've been referencing your latest speech from yeah. the conference, your last conference here in 2022, uh, in which you use some pretty dramatic language. I, I think it's warranted, by the way. I don't think yeah. it's... 
I don't think it's over uh, hyped by any means, but I think that um, at the same time, um, you know, I think a lot of people would say, well, you have all these relationships, you know, you talk about uh, adult education, for example, I know you're big on that. Well, again, maybe we're not seeing this, maybe it's more behind the scenes, but again, from the outside looking in, for example, if somebody reads that, that article, or, or it was an article, but if somebody hears your speech, which is on YouTube and was turned into an article and says, well, wait a minute, you're the, the head of the Jewish Funders Network. You have all these people with you. Um, why are you not influencing them more or steering them more into places yeah. where we can make this kind of change that I think <laughs> we want to try? Did you try to make Jews obey <laughs> sometimes? And Moses has been trying, we've been trying since Moses, it doesn't work. So people, you try to influence people in many different ways. I mean, the, the Jewish Founders Network is not a prescriptive organization, especially not, not only because we're not set up like that, because it doesn't work. Um, I mean, there's been, there are, there's a whole ecosystem of organizations all trying to make Jews give more and get more involved. And there is only so much you can do to convince people. People at some point have to engage with the issue and understand the needs. So my role is not really to to force them or or compel them to do stuff. I mean, I can try, but I'm going. I'm I'm not. I'm certainly going to fail because that's not how people operate in philanthropy. Philanthropy is a voluntary organization. It's a, it's a voluntary activity. Giving is voluntary. Um, and, and folks want to give to what they want to give. My, my job is to do a little bit judo with what you're saying, meaning I'm not starting from what I want them to do. I'm starting from what they want to achieve in the world. What is your vision? Your vision is a world with rich Jewish engagement. Okay, so let's see what do you need to do in order to get there. It's not me, Andreas, I have this, you know, from the top of my ivory tower and my infinite wisdom, I tell them they have to invest in Jewish adult education, right? It's it's more working with them and trying to understand what is the change you want to do in the world and how can you do it in the most effective way? And part of my job is to hold a mirror to the philanthropic community. And I don't mean word, as you just said. I, you know, when I try to tell them that, you know, the times in which we live require a much bolder philanthropic community than the ones we have. You, you have to understand that the natural state of philanthropy is underperformance. Why? Because philanthropy does not have a built-in feedback mechanism. You have a business, you underperform, you go bankrupt. You have a nonprofit, you underperform you don't raise money or people don't go to you. You're a doctor, you underperform, your patients die. You're a, you, you're a philanthropist, you make a bad grant, you get a gala in your honor, right? Like th there's no, there's no built-in feedback mechanism. The IRS will not, the IRS will control that your books are in order, but not that your grants are, uh, are uh, effective. So uh, my job is sometimes to show them you know, in a loving and 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 sort of empathetic way, because I because I really love what they do and I really love the motivation they have and the generosity with which they face the work. But to say this is how you can be more effective and this is what the field needs now. Now then it's up to them to take it or or leave it. But one thing that does help more than what Andres tells them is what their peers tell them. 
right? And that's the beauty of the Jewish Funders Network. By being a network, um, funders influence each other. And, and the beauty of, of the interactions that happen at, at the Jewish Funders Network is that passion is contagious. So take somebody like Harold Greenspan, for example, right? That you know, started PJ Library and his passion is contagious. And PJ Library now, I don't know what the budget is, but it's humongous, it's, it's big. You know, they, they serve a million, uh, half a million families worldwide. And this is because his passion was contagious. And that, and that was much more uh, effective than a litany of complaints from me. So I'm curious, by the way, I just want to call out the name of the, the article uh, or your speech, really, which was being decisive in the face of uncertainty, which I thought, again, was a phenomenal speech. And I was in incredibly inspired to read it. Um, but you do say some pretty damning things in here. You talk about being bolder. You talk about, um, you know, you basically say that there's there's three types of relationships that we have to focus on a relationship with our fellow Jews, a relationship with the outside world and a relationship with Judaism. Right. Um, I'm just curious, you know, I, I definitely encourage anyone who's interested in, in reading or watching, just Google the, the title that I just gave you. But I'm curious, what was the feedback that you were getting without naming any specific names? You know, what, what feedback did you get specifically at the conference from these funders about your speech? So people, I mean, I, I see the half glass, glass full. But for example, um, 72% of JFN members gave more in 2021 than in 2020, right? Like I don't have figures for 2022 yet, but so, I mean, I'd, listen, people can come after your speech and tell you it was a great speech. The question is not that. The question is, uh, do behaviors change afterwards, right? And a speech, you know, never changes the world, I mean, some might, you know, Martin Luther King's speech may change the world, but we're not, we don't live in those times anymore. It's a sustained effort to make, you know, to change attitudes and, and sort of encourage funders to work in a specific way. Um, but I think that coming out of the pandemic, the, you know, sometimes are really encouraging. Like, as I said, 72% people are, are giving, funders are giving more. 57% of them plan to keep their higher level of giving during the pandemic um, in the future. Um, a long battle of mine was against the 5% payout rate, right? Like foundations, I, mean, I know where your, the, the listeners are, but in the United States, foundations are obliged to give a minimum of 5% of their corpus every year, right? Now, the operating word there is minimum. Now, many funders treat it as a maximum. You know, and I say, you know, 5% is not a, was never supposed to be a, a ceiling, it was supposed to be a floor. So in, term, in times like now, you need to go beyond your 5%. You need, a, you need a big, bold investment. And I think, listen, I think that, that, that sometimes folks buy the notion of having a big idea and invest bold, but they don't really understand how those big ideas develop. They think that is some genius coming up you know, with a light bulb moment. And it doesn't work like that. It works by listening to the field, by working with others and whatever. So people got it. When I talk about bold investment, moonshots, you know, philanthropic moonshot, people agree. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they know how to get to them. And that's my work going. That's a follow-up work that I have to do. 
So I think that's a good point. And I think I'd like to talk about on the moonshot side and not on the funder side for a second, because, you know, the funders can get in line and say, I'm ready, you know, with a check in hand or what have you. And there are other resources at their disposal and say, I'm ready to fund or I'm ready to support a moonshot. But if there's no moonshots to support, then it's a two-way street, right? And so, you know, one of the things that I feel in the Jewish world is that we don't really have the moonshotters. Uh, we have a lot of really nice projects in, in many ways, a lot of really nice local, maybe regional, sometimes national, but I haven't seen uh, real innovation in a long time in the Jewish world. And I define real innovation as the follows. Has to achieve basically in today's day and age global scale or very, very close to it. Has to have widespread consumer adoption and has to have repeat ongoing engagement. So I think two of those three, a lot of boxes are checked, uh, or a lot of organizations check two of the three boxes, including like a birthright, I would say checks two of those three, PJ Library checks two out of those three, uh, a lot of organizations check two of those three, but to check all three, I haven't seen, except for two situations, one is J-Date back in the late 1990s, and the other is J-Swipe 2013-2014, both were acquired by the same publicly traded company, Spark Networks. So I'm wondering if we don't have moonshots in the Jewish world because moonshots rarely exist in the nonprofit space. In fact, what? the two examples I just gave you were private for-profit companies. And I'm yeah. wondering if that's part of the issue on the moonshot side where you're never gonna get a true moonshot because nonprofits by and large, not just in the Jewish world, in the world in general, are not moonshotters and that's okay. I don't know if- Right, I mean, I, I, mean I, think, I think there's a lot to unpack in what you said. First of all, Jaded and JSwipe don't have content. It's a connecting platform. So it's it's much easier to get there when you're not asking people to change their lifestyles or whatever. I mean, you, you give them a platform to do what they do in a more efficient way. So it's not really the same. Um, secondly, not everything needs to be a munch. Like Jewish communities sometimes go, oh, now it's everything local and small and startup-y. And now everything has to be a big moonshot like that reaches millions of people. No, there is there is place for both. You know, like the, the, the fabric of Jewish community, it's done in many cases with small local organizations. So not let's relax a little bit. And don't don't get me wrong, I'm a big, I'm big proponent of bold, ambitious moonshots, but not everything and everybody has to be involved in the world. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say, I think that the that the way to come up with moonshots, let me give you a thing. Before we go there, you talk about moonshots in the nonprofit versus moonshots in the general, you know, corporate world or, or governmental world. The original term moonshot comes from John F. Kennedy, who said we're gonna get to the to the to the to the, to the moon in, in in 10 years. Now <laughs> That was a quote-unquote easy moonshot. Why? Because it was a technical challenge. It wasn't really an identity challenge. He, Kennedy wasn't change, wasn't asking Americans to change their behaviors to like every individual American to do something different or light candles every Friday night. Like he was basically tasking uh, 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 an industrial complex with a technical challenge. The technology had to be developed, but basically existed. And it was basically 
putting enough enough effort into it would achieve it. I mean, there was ingenuity. I'm not minimizing. There was ingenuity, creativity, but ultimately it was a technical challenge. It was a technical hurdle that needed to be overcome. You could break down the moonshot of Jeff Kennedy into a series of technological challenges that with enough research money and 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 manpower you could you could it's very different in the in the Jewish space or in the nonprofit space when we're talking about people's identities and changing behaviors so that's already a built-in difficulty of having moonshots in the in the Jewish world the other the other thing is that it's hard to measure so um, the, 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 the JFK moonshot was, did we land in the moon or we didn't? Right now, I could say it was a moon, birthright was a moonshot to get every young Jew to Israel, but did we achieve our goals? What were our goals? More, you know, less assimilation, more engagement with Israel. How do you measure that? It, it's not so simple. So that's, there's a built-in difficulty in having moonshots for the nonprofit space. The that's my point is that maybe we should stop looking at the nonprofit space to produce well but 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 I look at it differently we call them moonshot because they're very ambitious and because they're deeply transformational right and if and the way to get to them is not again by having one moment of illumination and coming coming up with a moonshot we get to them through what I call adjacencies basically birthright which was a moonshot which said basically we're going to be a very ambitious goal that had a lot of moving parts that had to be put together um but it wasn't it wasn't an original idea it was basically an adjacency to the israel experience projects that charles bronfman had been doing for 30 years basically said, wait, wait a second, we have this basis, we have the Israel experience programs. Listen, I've done an Israel experience program in 1985, you know, and it was, it wasn't birthright, but, you know, it was part of the process that led to birthright. So the intelligence of communal leaders and philanthropies is to look, what is the adjacency? In other words, we have Israel experience. Now, what if Israel experience became free, universal, and more transformational. What do we need to do for that to happen? Right? Take PJ Library. PJ Library was the same story. It was an adjacency. Basically, Harold Greenspan listens to Dolly Parton, who gives you know, books to young children in, 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 um, in urban neighborhoods. And he said, well, what if we do the same thing for Jews? Right? So that's one thing. The second thing, so it builds on something that exists. It's not creation out of nothing. The only one that creates out of nothing is God. We create out of stuff that exists. And the second thing is leveraging existing behaviors. When you're talking about changing behaviors, you're going to be, you're always going to find it easier to work with behaviors that already exist. In other words, take PJ Library. People already, um, read books to their children, right? We do, every parent will read book to their children. What, what Harold Greenspan says is, you're already reading books, read them a Jewish book, and that here is a book. So you're leveraging an existing behavior. So when you break down the moonshot, you're really looking at a series of incremental 
upgrades to ideas that already exist. Right. right. When you look at that, it's much easier to come up with moonshots than to say, I'm going to sit down in a lab and I'm going to come up with this brilliant idea on my own. I agree with that. And actually, when you look at innovation, I mean, disruptive innovation, a term that was coined by Clayton Christensen from Harvard University, I mean, he talked about that innovation doesn't mean just inventing something out of nothing. It means taking something that exists, making packaging it differently, offering it differently, programming it differently. Like, I'm with you on that. But you're, you talked about two very important um, points here. One is behavior change and two is people. And again, I'm looking at behavior change. So I'm, you know, just things that come to mind as you're talking about behavior change. So having people, uh, instead of staying at hotels, what they've been doing all their life, they're now staying at other people's apartments. That's called Airbnb. Having people get into everyone's cars as random people, strangers, you know, growing up, they said never get into a stranger's car. And now you order it on your phone. A stranger comes, picks you up instead of ordering a taxi or taking another means of transportation. That's called Uber or Lyft. So those are just two examples. I don't know if, you know, those examples, again, come from the for-profit world, the private sector world. And so I just don't know if uh, nonprofits can affect behavior change because it's hard for me to think of any examples where that happens. The second thing that you mentioned is people that, you know, we have to have people thinking about these problems, obviously, but who are these people? What's the quality, the professional right. it's quality? Not, it's not so much, I'll start with the, with the second one. It's not so much people thinking, it's, it, indeed it's people thinking, but also people observing. Like in other words, it's, you know, I think that we don't we we do a lot of research in the Jewish community, but we don't do enough ethnographic research, meaning we don't go out and observe how Jews live their life. Now, when you observe them, you come up with much better ideas <coughs> that if you that if you ask them a question. If you observe them and you realize that Jewish teenagers uh, play esports on their computer, you know, seven hours a day. So you say, hmm, so maybe we should Judaize that activity in some way. Right, right? I understand so that, but that was my point. My point was not what the people are doing, it's the people themselves. And I'm sorry to say this, there's a lot of people that are gonna be offended by what I'm about to say, and you might be as well. But the, I mean, you used to work at IBM, okay? Yeah. Adam Lehman from Hillel used to work at, I believe, AOL, okay? Yeah. For every one of you, there are a lot of very, very, very good-hearted people in the Jewish world, what you call Jewish professionals, but they're just not professionally talented enough to solve these big problems. So you can say we need to observe and we need to ethnograph. That's fine. I agree with you. But if the people don't know how to do it in a professional way and then translate that research, as you say, which there's more than enough of, into development, because R&D goes hand yeah. in hand. No, I'm, I think you're you're asking people to do things that they're just not, frankly, capable of no, doing. I'm, That's an issue. I'm going to. I'm going now. It's my turn to actually offend a lot of people. Having worked in the corporate world, I cannot tell you that the average intelligence of any corporate executive is pretty low. <laughs> like those people work, like working in a company, is ten times easier than working the Jewish community. The level of complexity that working in the Jewish organization has is like, listen, I've been uh, 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 at a very young age, a senior 
manager in an international corporation. And that was much easier in comparison to running why is the Jewish that? Federation? Because there is a level of personal involvement of people, because everybody, because everybody in the Jewish community is a stakeholder, because you are subjected to different parameters of success depending on who measures it, because the the ideological is mixed with the performance, because the personal is linked with the ideological. It's very very complicated. Now, of course. If we as a community don't, and that's why I'm one of the leading uh, or the funding board members of Leading Edge. Um, if we as a community don't invest in getting the best talent in the for the Jewish community, I mean, we're going to lose. And in a way, you are you are right, but that's also a self fulfilling prophecy. Meaning, you come from the perspective that people working in the Jewish community are are not smart and they work in the Jewish community because they don't have anything to do. So then you're gonna pay them less. You're gonna pay them less. You're gonna, so you're gonna disempower them. So you're gonna keep attracting low talent people. Right? The, the way of cutting that vicious circle is to seriously invest in talent, pay people competitive salaries with the private market, which is something that we do at JFN. At JFN people make salaries that they would make in the private market because that I'm competing with, I want the best people, right? And 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 I don't tell them that they, ha I don't think they have to be penalized for doing something for the good of the world or for the good of the Jewish people. You know, if we penalize people for going into the nonprofit sector, of course, like you'd rather be, you'd rather, if you're gonna make $100,000 working in a nonprofit and $400,000 working in a corporation, so you don't work in a nonprofit, you, you work in a corporation, and you donate $50,000 a year and you become a big macher, and, but you're not contributing what you could. So I think, I think that, that's, that that's a complicated statement to make because, because it, it has that risk of becoming self-fulfilling and because it in many cases is objectively not true. There are cases like, you can say that my case is good, moving from the corporate sector to the, to the, to, to the Jewish sector it was successful, but many people actually failed in the Jewish community, having moved from senior positions in the in the in the secular world. I mean, I can not want to name names, but the very high-profile people that went from senior corporate positions to senior Jewish positions, they were very, you know, successful and failed. So, that, but but I, I wanted to say something completely different about what you're talking about Uber and an Airbnb and that. Yeah. I think that your I, I think that the behavioral change is kind of different there. It's more of an organizational change in the sense that companies have realized that in the 21st century, what's important is not to own the product or the service, but to own the platform. And that brings us back to the question of JDET or JSwipe, right? Like the question there is not, I mean, the, what these guys own is the platform. What Uber says, wait a second, if I want to work in transportation, what is the best business in the 21st century? Owning a fleet of cars or owning a platform for hundreds of thousands of people to communicate and find their own rights? Of course, the latter. Now, 
The problem I find is in the Jewish community, we're still being the hotel and not the Airbnb. We're, 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 the, we're the taxi owner and not the Uber. Meaning a JCC will work very hard on providing a menu of, of, goods, in, of goods and services, of programs, workshops, activities, what have you. When in fact, maybe they need to think of themselves as a platform where people can do Jewish and deploy their own creativity. When you're talking about Jewish leaders being incredibly creative, they don't have to be. What they, what they have to do is they have to create the conditions for individual Jews to be creative and be entrepreneurial. What happens, like Jeff, and I'm talking you know, with, with, with knowledge here because Jeff then operates like that. I don't come up with the ideas. What I do is I generate a platform where funders can connect and they can come up with it. They can deploy their creativity and their entrepreneurship in my platform. And that's, and that's way more valuable than me trying to come up with all the brilliant ideas because I, I, even if I was extremely bright, which I'm not, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be able to replicate the energy or the intelligence that comes from the serendipity of of people working together. You know, Jewish organizations need to be spaces for engineered serendipity. You know, platform, you, you kind of need to be, you need to create structures where people can create and co-create. Like think about your phone. Your phone, it's only half of it is Apple. All the apps are not Apple. And what makes the, the, the iPhone so valuable is that people deploy their apps on the uh, on the Apple platform, right? So yes, Apple will give you a couple of basic programs, but the richness of your phone is all the stuff that you upload there, right? So in the Jewish community, we're not used to operate like that. So that's why we're less creative because we try to provide everything. We try to provide, give you an iPhone that has only the programs that we give instead of saying, here's the platform, come and create. Here's your phone. Here's the code, you know, and you can create, you know, apps that will operate in this operating system. It's a, it's a great point. And it's, it's funny that you bring that up because there was just an article on E-Jewish Philanthropy about J-Live. I'm sure you heard about it. Yeah. Um, I actually was going to write a rebuttal, uh, but I'll just use this opportunities. And I'm, I'm just curious to get your, your thoughts on this. So, so they're building a platform. And kudos yeah, yeah. to them. It's uh, it's an interesting niche, but it's it's a platform uh, of events, Jewish events. Yeah. And what I was going to say is, I said, listen, it's it's great that you're building this platform. Um, it's it's serving a niche audience. It's maybe we'll have certain things like certain bells and whistles features that appeal more to the Jewish world than maybe other worlds. But if the events themselves are not good then the platform's meaningless. And I right. find, what's that? Yeah, you know, garbage in, garbage out. But, but the question, but, the, but, but you're looking at it in a very restrictive way because a platform, if it's good, and that's why I do like JLo. I mean, I think that the platform then takes a life of its own. Uh, meaning, let's say, you take JLife, and I don't know if people know what JLife is. It's a platform that it, it's, it aims to be way more than an event platform. It's sort of a, and actually the guy who's 
to uh, developing it is a is a, is a friend, uh, Scott Kaufman. You should you should invite him to the podcast because he has some very interesting ideas about it. But but you know not to defend a friend. I think that what he's trying to do is very interesting because A, at the basic level is what you say. It, it's one space, you have all the events, all the Jewish stuff that is happening in a city. And that in and of itself is valuable. Yes, true, the, that, that they don't control the quality of the event, but you can't demand that from them. Like there, you don't, you know, it's like asking the phone book to vouch. No, I'm not. I'm, this, that's not my point. My point is but, not but, but, that they should. But I just want to finish my point and I'll yeah, give it to you. Yeah. My point is not that they should create a filter for what events come on and they should create some kind of a measurement for what's good and what's not. My point is this. The Jewish world, by and large, puts out subpar events. Okay. And, I, no, that's yeah. it's. I've been yeah, told okay. that. that's a different that's a different story. But that's no, but that's. But let me finish. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is that you can have this beautiful platform, very user friendly on all the devices you want it. But if the actual content, because you talked about this a few minutes ago, if the actual right. content, the events in this case, is not good, then people right. are not going to use the platform because they're not going to want to go to and do subpar things. And this is one of the reasons why Jews are less and less engaged, frankly. Right, right. The, the cost of the, the cost of mediocrity in Jewish life is very high, and and I agree with you on that. But 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 let me let me respond to you in two ways. And again, seeing seeing the half glass room, platforms like JLife can be very useful because let's say you're a user, you have one experience of using it, right? But let's say you're a communal leader and you look at JLife for the city of say Mans, Indiana, right? And you see there are ten events and there are ten and 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 a they are the same when i look at the entire menu it's not creative i can identify gaps i can then create connections within the platform so as a directory a platform like that is limited it shows what it is but as a potential for development and for intelligent planning at the communal level and for and for exchange and connection between different communal players the potential is enormous. So, at the first, yeah, but we've level, heard that. But Andres, we've heard that that line a million wait, times. Wait, wait, wait. Potential is enormous. I mean, come on. At the end of the wait, day, if we don't reach potential, what does it matter? Finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. I got to get to the quality point in a second. I just want to finish my point about uh, JLEG. So I think that platforms like that, for example, Twitter. If you think of Twitter as a platform where people talk, it ended up being something where people posted. Now people like retweet connect, create, create hashtags. The same could happen with JLife or with any other Jewish platform, if you set them up as a place where people can be creative on, on their own. Now that's to finish with the platform thing. In terms of quality, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like if Jewish events are subpar, people are not gonna go. My first, my first, um, thing when I was a community planner or planning events working at the Federation, my first question was to the people proposing an event is, would you go? <laughs> you know, would you leave? You know, is it is that this that this come before a hot bath and a good book? If it doesn't, just don't do it. Right. But but here's the half glass full here. I think that the pandemic did a lot of good um, in terms of quality. Why? 
because it commoditized quality, right? So what the pandemic did is it flattened the offer of content. So let's say your um, your rabbi, you know, his sermons are not great. <laughs> now, now during the pandemic, services are in Zoom, and all of a sudden you say, "Wait a second! If I'm already doing this on Zoom, I'm not limited to my rabbi. I can listen to Shannon Browse or David Wolpe or Elliot Cosgrove, or I can even listen listen to you know sermons from." Rabbi Sachs, if not right? So it made so all the stuff that was not quality, you weren't you weren't gonna do. Like it, so, I think that we have post pandemic a window of opportunity. And by the way, the same happened with the, with the secular world. Like if you live in Buenos Aires, for example, you're gonna do a virtual tour of a museum. What are you going to do, a virtual tour of the Louvre or, the, or a virtual tour of the Facacto Museum of uh, Buenos Aires? You're going to do the Louvre, right? So I, I think we, we have a window of opportunity here of people got used to high quality and high quality became cheap because of the technological tools that we have. So I think that it behooves us, becoming a leaders, to to continue demanding the same quality that we paradoxically had during the pandemic. And to also redefine the roles of, of communal professionals. Like if, if my rabbi, let's face it, his sermons, and I'm not talking about specifically my rabbi because I love her and she's amazing, but <laughs> talking about uh, if, if for argument's sake, my rabbi is not great at sermons, not a great scholar, not a great public speaker, but he's good at accompanying people at the pastoral work at the community building so don't compete with Sharon Browse take Sharon Browse you know sermons and help people interact with that high quality content don't try to compete with them like use that that idea of of content and high quality content becoming widely accessible to your advantage in term in, instead of competing with it right no, I so, appreciate that. so 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 you know, and the same goes with the sharing thing, like programs like Craigslist and Uber and Airbnb, then they became much more corporate, but but it came out of the sharing economy of people sharing stuff, right? It's kind of the same thing. People are sharing, help them do it better, right? And maybe, yeah, the, role, it... maybe the role of the professional is it has to change. But going back to your question about talent, it's not only that people are smart, people are very smart in the Jewish community. Uh, Jewish professionals are some of the smartest people I know. The question is, how is the role defined? Is the role defined as trying to all the time outcompete people that you can't possibly outcompete, or trying to be an aggregator of good things that are happening in the world and curate that for your participants? But so if you I really find a role like that, you have a much better shot of providing people with good quality. Absolutely. But again, we, we come back to this... Um contradiction that we just see keep saying in the Jewish world where you're saying now we have to share more but we know that uh Jewish nonprofits by and large are not very uh as we would say in Hebrew they don't uh, you know they're, they're not interested in sharing things that are not directly uh, right. you know, positive that, for them. That, they have a very 
Jewish organizations, and there I agree with you, Jewish organizations have a very territorial view of, of information and of intellectual property. And in my view, that's a mistake. And that's a mistake from their perspective, not, you know, I think that, you know, sharing is the new owning, uh, meaning, meaning the people that set the parameters of how information is going to be shared rather than restrict that sharing are the ones that do better in the in the new economy. So uh, iPhone could have said, I'm not going to share my operating system with anybody, right? But then if you do that, I mean, they don't fully share it, but for argument's sake, if you don't do that, people cannot deploy apps in your phone because they can't program apps for a iOS. So they, so Apple will be the, the, the porter for not sharing, right? Uh, the same with Windows, like Windows, why is Windows so great? Because people can, people have information, Windows shared with developers information so that they can create programs that run on Windows. Right, but Andres, you're taught, you're using examples that are for-profit examples, private sector examples, in which one plus one equals three. We know that in, in the in the for-profit world, in the nonprofit it can, world, it can it's be zero the same sum. for the nonprofit. It can be the same for the nonprofit world. If you find it right, um, if a synagogue says, you know, the the in, listen, the metaphor is not, are not perfect, but if a JCC or a synagogue said, we're gonna give you usage of our space we want to work with our we're not going to just share the list of members because that the member you have a right to privacy and all that but what if there is a way in which we can we can make sure that people that can offer these members interesting stuff have access to that, that information there is a lot of proprietary information about the jewish community and and some organizations are doing a very good job so uja in new york for example shares with everybody their Jewish population study is a gold mine of information. Now, I think that Jewish, Jewish community organizations need to understand that, you know, that the proverb of lifting the tide so that, you know, what is it called raising the tide and lift all boats and whatever. I think that if you start looking at the field and not at your organization, it's gonna be hard at the beginning, but everyone is gonna win and ultimately, the funders need to force you to do that. You know, funders, force is a strong word, but they can encourage you, let's say, to do it with a little bit of stick and carrot approach, meaning they can they can reward cooperation among organizations and they can penalize those that don't want to cooperate and don't want to work with others because ultimately it's their money and you know they don't they don't want to duplicate, they don't want to pay twice. So it's totally fine for a funder to say, I want you guys to share information. I want you guys to work together. Not maybe not on everything, but maybe in some things that you can you can share resources. Yeah. Yeah, no, I hear that. I mean, we'll put that to bed. I do want to ask you a question about uh, JFN, and because you know you've been very outspoken about using the pandemic as a launch point to, you know, move into a new era in the Jewish world. I'm just curious, you know, what are some of the things that either you're already doing differently at JFN or that you're planning to do differently? you know, with with the, the pandemic in mind yeah. and, and what it's enabled. Yeah, I think I think that the pandemic was not so much a revolution, but a catalyst. You know, it sort of accelerated processes that were already there. 
So we just talk about collaboration, for example. During the pandemic, I mean, I would I was sort of hacking the Chinik of collaboration with funders for for years, right? Telling people how important it is to collaborate and whatever. The pandemic gave some urgency to that, and then it got people to work together in a way that they wouldn't have if they hadn't feel the the the, the, the urgency that the crisis created. So I think that collaboration is going to be a big thing in the future, uh, and we're investing a lot of resources into that. I think that uh, during the pandemic, um, more than half of JFN members started funding things that were not their usual niche or their usual mission. And that I think it's, a, it's another window of opportunity for us to, to leverage, meaning folks are open to fund new things. They're less dogmatic about, well, so as an example, people that would never fund poverty and human services, they started doing it during the pandemic because the needs were so great. This, and when you break that taboo of I'm only fund within my daletamot, within my confines, when you break that taboo, so the sky's the limit, you can really, so that's the type of things we're, we're doing. Uh, we're investing to your point before about comparison with the corporate world, we're investing a lot of effort in creating good data you know, there's no enough data in the Jewish world. I mean, there is a lot of data, but the data is not usable. Data systems don't talk to each other. And during the pandemic, it also became evident that you need to know a lot more than we know now. Where Jews live? What are the needs? How is the Jewish family composed? What are the motivations? What are, all that stuff is going to be important. And But if you ask me what for me, and here I'm kind of alone, and I don't think I'm the only one who thinks about this, uh, but uh, I, I do think I'm the only one that gives this the, the level of priority that I think it has. I think that what the priority, what the foundation, with, oh, sorry, with the pandemic does, it gives urgency to a quest for meaning. I think that people are going to be looking for meaning, for values, for content. After every pandemic, there's a spiritual quest, you know, uh, because it's obvious to understand why, because you have a brush with death, you know, and that immediately puts you in a transcendental state of mind. You start asking yourself for the meaning of stuff. Every trauma, and the pandemic is a global trauma, every trauma, it, you know, sets you up in a quest for meaning. And after the Black Death, for example, the Reformation was, you know, developed. After the smoke the smallpox epidemic in Asia in the sixth century, Buddhism really, you know, sprang up and, and it was created before, but it became very popular after that as people were looking for new spiritual responses to what would, had happened to them. And I think that in the Jewish community, we're not set up to satisfy that quest for meaning. We, we don't know enough. We don't reflect enough about questions of meaning and transcendence and theology and ideas we don't we don't have that i mean we, we, we we're leaving us outdated ideologies you know all the jewish ideologies you know reform chabad uh, orthodox conservative they're all ideologies of the 19th century and so I think that the, that the pandemic gives urgency to the creation and the development of new 
ideological avenues for people to find meaning in the world. And uh, and that's, you know, and I'm I'm alone on this, but that's the thing that worries me the most, that people are going to look for meaning and they may not find it, they may not find it within the Jewish community. Couldn't agree with you more. I want to ask you one more question. This is totally off topic from what we've been talking about. But were you aware that Theodore Herzl was contemplating for the state of Israel, of course, Palestine, but also Argentina? Yeah, of course. It's uh, he, he wasn't really contemplating it. He, he basically he basically uh, he, he floated ideas, saying his point was we need a territory. And he threw, you know, whether it's Palestine, whether it's Uganda, whether it's Argentina, I don't care. Now you have to understand, Argentina in the 1880s, it was like saying Siberia, like literally, like the Patagonia had been just uh, conquered from the Indians. Um, uh, and uh, it was a, you know, completely, you know, humongous expanse of, of nothing, basically. And so it, it kind of makes sense, but it, but he, he said it in that context. Now, interestingly enough, but because of, but that, by the way, mention of a remote place as an example, gave a lot of grief to Argentinian Jews, because it became a conspiracy theory that the far right uh, uses till this very day, that is called the Plan Andinia. It's supposedly. You know, there is supposedly a plan of the Jews to occupy the Patagonia and create a Jewish state. And um, and, and there are and, and that's still going around. Um, there's um, as ludicrous as it is, I mean, still people that firmly believe in the plan Andinia. And actually, people that were detained, you know, and kidnapped during the military government, they uh, they recall being asked about the plan Andinia. And there is actually one, one guy, you know, Jacobo Timmerman, a very famous journalist, very Zionist too, but very famous in Argentina. His theory is that he was kept alive by the generals because they were thinking of some sort of show trial where they would prove the existence of the plan Andinia. And, uh, and they were going to uncover sort of the international Zionist conspiracy. Uh, it, it's pretty crazy. So yeah, thank you, Arzul, for that one. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I think that's a delight to a lot of our to a lot of our listeners. And I know in general that a lot of people don't realize that you know there were other Uganda. You mentioned Argentina, of course. Uh, of course, you know we, we ended up doing it back in the ancestral homeland of. Well, there was there was one in, there was actually one in Siberia, in Siberia, Virovijan, uh, that still exists. I mean, there, there was a Stalinist idea of, of creating a Jewish homeland uh, in within the within the Soviet Union too. There's plenty of ideas like that. That thanks God, you know, the only one that made sense, uh, God created. Andres, this has been really, uh, really cool, and I appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Big pleasure.